0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Go Wild. Now, the Go Wild app has added some really cool and exciting functionality to their app, and the first one I want to talk about is the Near Me function. And basically what this does, it allows you to engage and connect with people in your area. You guys can talk about gear. You guys can talk about hunting areas. You guys can talk about what's going on in the woods, and it just allows the user to be more of a community and connect easier. The second part is the Gearbox. And what the Gearbox is, it is a, an opportunity for the users to not only see reviews on products and see what the Go Wild community is using in the field, what products they're using, but it also allows you guys to purchase up to 150,000 products. There's, you, there's a shopping function on it. So check out the Go Wild app. If you haven't downloaded it to your phone yet, you need to. And you can do that at any app store that is currently available. Go Wild. It's an awesome app. Check them out.
1: The topic of today's podcast is going to be gun hunting and more specifically, going to go really in depth and just try and explain the differences between how timing, whether it's pre post or during the rut, pressure and terrain can all kind of impact uh, how you would hunt it and how you would scout for it. And the scouting is obviously something you can do right now. And the e-scouting is something that I have been already doing this year uh, for a couple of my different gun hunts that I have going. So that's a good segue into Onyx. I've been using the app and the online version of Onyx for several years now as my primary e-scouting tool. I'm able to get a great feel for the overall lay of the land, find public and private boundaries, access points, pinch points, speculate on food and bedding locations, and store all of my waypoints, tracks, and offline maps for airplane mode use in the field. Use the code DIY for a discount on the Hot service. So why gun hunting as a topic today? Well, I went ahead and did something that I had said in the past I may never do, and that is I applied for an Iowa tag. Now, the reason I said I might not apply for an Iowa tag in the past is just simply because, I mean, if you're doing an archery tag, by the time you're all said and done, you're probably in like the seven to 800 plus dollar range just for that one deer tag. And not only that, but you're kind of conflicting with other states, you know, rot, assuming it's a rot hunt or whatever, or just, you know, throughout the season, anytime you go, you're taking away time from other states that you could also potentially hunt. So the big key decision factor for me was, When I applied, I did not apply for an archery tag. I actually applied for a gun tag and they have a couple different seasons, but I basically just applied for the first shotgun season, which is in the first week of December. And just based on their draw odds, I would say that I have a pretty good shot at drawing that tag this year. Uh, My wife, Sam also put in for a point. Uh, She didn't apply for the actual hunt itself. So, assuming everything goes according to plan, I'll get that Iowa tag and basically be able to hunt down there the first week of um, their shotgun season in December. So number one, that's going to save a little bit of cost overall, just simply because I'm not having to pay for the $65 or whatever it is preference point for, you know, three, four years to finally apply or finally draw an archery tag in some of the, uh, the Southern units. Also, one of the big things here is that it's not overlapping with any of my other rut hunts. So I think Iowa makes the the sixth or seventh potential state that I'd be hunting this year, Minnesota, Wisconsin, North Dakota, South Dakota, Missouri, and Iowa. So yeah, six states. And essentially because all of those other hunts are, you know, from September on through November, having a hunt in December, means that I don't have it overlapping with any of those other out-of-state trips. South Dakota is going to be a rut hunt. North Dakota is going to be an early season hunt. Wisconsin and Minnesota, I can hunt whenever. Uh, But I can basically, you know, hunt all of those things during their respective time frames. And then after all that hunting is done, then I got that short little Iowa hunt in the beginning of of December. So it works out on, I guess, a couple of levels. And that was kind of the main reason why I decided to go in and, and apply for that. And I had even been on the fence for a while and just applying for a gun tag, um, and, you know, doing a lot of research and asking people who have done those types of hunts in the past and just see what their overall experience was. And really what kind of pushed me over the edges, I was driving through Iowa, um, several weeks ago and just driving through the habitat and terrain and thinking, man, this, this is very similar to habitat that I am already familiar with in other states, but there's a likelihood, you know, I could have an opportunity at an older, uh, buck with a little you know they're just more of them running around and potentially lower pressure uh so it you know could be good from that aspect, but as i'm going to talk about in this podcast a little bit, less pressure for this first shotgun season may not necessarily be the best thing because what I want to dive in a little bit deeper into this particular podcast is how I would prepare for and how I would set up for gun hunt specifically and so there's a couple of different aspects to that right there's there's timing of the, the gun hunt. Is it before the rut? Is it during the rut? Is it post-rut? Pressure. If there's little pressure versus if there's a lot of gun pressure, like we have in a lot of these Midwestern states, that's going to play a big impact. And then also the terrain, whether it's a swamp hunt or a big ho- woods hunt or a hill country hunt, that all plays into it as well. And there's definitely some things that you can do even now. And there are things that I have been doing to basically try and already prep for this hunt, assuming that I'm going to draw and then I'm going to kind of explain how that differs from some of my other rifle or shotgun hunts that I have planned this year, meaning uh, potentially late season in Southeast Minnesota and for sure, the nine day season in Wisconsin, which is going to be probably a big woods on. So let's talk first about timing. Obviously every state is going to have their own timing for their main gun deer season, which is the time of course, when you're going to have your army of orange, out in force, and you're going to have by far the highest numbers of hunters typically throughout any of the other seasons. And some states are definitely going to split up their gun seasons. I know in my state of Minnesota, there's a couple different options you can choose from. It seems like the first gun season, which is right during the rut is most popular, uh, but you also have kind of a, a second gun season uh, week, as well as some additional in some of the CWD zones, additional gun hunts that are a little bit later into the year, same type of thing with Wisconsin. They have their main nine-day gun deer season, uh, but they also have some usual, you know, doe hunts outside of that main nine-day. But we're just going to focus on when is that particular hunt. We're going to focus on when is that nine-day or when is that five-day, whatever that biggest season is, uh, because that's when most guys are going to be in the woods. Now I don't know of too many states that have their main gun season in a pre-rut time frame. Maybe some of the states that have those extended seasons, like, you know, places down south that might have a four or six week long rifle hunting season. I could see that being the case, uh, but then they got kind of weird rut timing regardless. But all the Midwestern states, I'm not aware of any that have a primary rifle season or a primary shotgun season that's pre-rut. I can only speculate that some of that reason might just be for tradition. You know, they've always kind of been later into that November time frame. Uh, maybe there's some reasonings for having it you know, post rut or during the rut, obviously the people think are more advantageous to hunt during those time frames. But as far as why is it's not pre-rut, the only thing I could think of is they would have to change it, likely from whatever time frame it's already in, and that would mean encroaching on the the bow hunting seasons or the archery seasons, which are probably going to meet more resistance. That's the only thing I can you know kind of speculate as to why there's probably not too many states with a pre-rut gun hunting season. So I'm not really going to go into much more detail other than that. Uh, but how about if a gun season is during the rut, this is something that I have a, a fair bit of experience with in my home state here of Minnesota, depending on the year, we might have a late gun season, which will start on like the 8th or the 9th of November, or we might have one that starts a little bit earlier that could start on like the 3rd of November. So when you have that kind of a starting date and then it extends on for, you know, another basically eight days that definitely puts you right dab smack in the middle of the rut uh, for the time of year that the rut occurs. You know, usually I peak breeding around the 14th, 15th ish of November. So a lot of that chasing would naturally be occurring during those first couple weeks in November, which makes it, you know, definitely different uh, from the Wisconsin that I grew up hunting. But basically it kind of intertwines a little bit with pressure because what I've seen is if you have a lot of pressure, that's definitely still going to impact the deer movement during the rut, but because it's the rut, despite pressure, sometimes deer will still do things that you wouldn't expect them to do with the pressure. So you get this weird kind of mix. And what I like to do is kind of look at both and try and figure out what makes the more sense. If it's, you know, truly an area where pressure is key or you get some of these areas here around the twin cities where you might drive around opening morning and see, you know, 60, 70 vehicles parked around a a given, area of public land, then I'm definitely going to lean more towards my uh, pressure-based stand locations and pressure-based strategies more so than the rut. And if it's an area where there's going to be less hunting pressure, or I think I found a spot that's more overlooked, even though there might be a lot of other guys in a particular area, then I might be able to treat it more as if it were a rut hunt and I was, in, you know, hunting with archery equipment. Now, if you had a state that was very low hunting pressure or you had, you know, a big chunk of private land or whatever, I would basically treat a rut gun hunt exactly the same as I would an archery hunt. The only difference is just the weapon that you'd have in the woods and the fact that you're wearing orange, but in terms of uh, where to hunt and, you know, downwind bedding areas and pinch points between bedding, all that kind of stuff would be exactly the same. But with uh, the pressure kind of being mixed into that, it's going to definitely blend into the same way that I would treat a post rut gun hunt, which is basically what we have, not only with the Wisconsin nine day deer season, but also for this Iowa hunt that I just applied for. And they're differently timed a little bit. The Iowa season or the, yeah, the Iowa season is a little bit later into the year than that Wisconsin one is, but they're both on the tail end of that peak breeding. Uh, and usually the Wisconsin gun hunt in, in time frames where there hasn't been a lot of pressure, I naturally will see very little deer movement they're pretty worn down from the rut and this is probably also a reason why deer drives are so popular because when you have that timing around Thanksgiving, you get the family together, you go out on the back 40 or whatever, and you organize a drive to get those deer up and moving because they're not going to be moving much on their own. And so it makes a lot of sense. And you can kind of understand why a lot of uh, private land deer hunting revolves around deer drives in those types of states. And even in public land too, a a lot of times you'll see big groups get together and organize deer drives. That's certainly not the only strategy that works, of course, uh, especially if you're a solo guy, you're not going to have obviously a big group to organize a deer drive with, uh, even though some of those small pushes can be uh, very effective. I'm not even going to talk too much about the small wind bumps and pushes that you can do I'm mainly focusing on this podcast from the perspective of you're just one guy and you have to be able to either use the natural deer movement, or you have to be able to use other hunting pressure to your advantage. And with those post rut uh, time frames, I actually kind of welcome pressure to a certain extent. I welcome the pressure, and I welcome looking for areas that give you an opportunity to get away from other people, and also get into areas where you expect the deer to go to. I mean, it's pretty, pretty common sense, but I still see the same thing year after year when I'm hunting in some of these, you know, high pressure gun hunts that I hardly ever see other hunters unless it's basically off in a distance. I'm looking at through my binoculars. And typically I will always see more deer than other hunters. Typically, not always. Um, it seems like, you know, more and more, you'll be able to find those areas where there's guys going deep there, you know, but if they are going deep and if they're set up before daylight, like you typically are, then they're really not impacting a whole lot. And if they're the kind of guys that are getting back in there deep, but they're doing so at like midday, cause they're bored or whatever, then that's generally only going to work to your advantage. So one of the reasons I decided to pick the first shotgun season to apply for in Iowa, as opposed to either the second shotgun season or the late muzzleloader season is because I, as weird as it sounds, I want more pressure because in a state that is not very well known for, you know, high hunting numbers, it's known for low hunting numbers, you know, on the contrary, I'm not a hundred percent confident that I can just go into an area mostly blind and just be able to find great deer movement, get in real tight to the bedding and just have a pattern basically picked out because I don't expect them to move very far on their own during daylight that time of the year. I want to basically be able to leverage the other guys to almost essentially drive the deer to me. And it's a very similar strategy to what I would do in Wisconsin around that Thanksgiving timeframe. So we've talked about timing. We've talked about pressure and how oftentimes those things can be intertwined a little bit. The last thing to talk about is terrain. And while terrain, pressure, and timing are all, you know, kind of inputs, essentially the exact terrain type and location is going to help determine from those other inputs about pressure and timing where exactly I'm going to try and set up a stand site. And let's pick it apart, I guess, terrain type by terrain type, just from the areas that I'm more familiar with. Uh, So, I don't have as much experience hunting like river bottom type area or like some of those big pine plantations that you have in certain areas. Mostly familiar with either big woods, cattail marsh slash swamp, or hill country uh, for these type of hunts. So let's talk about hill country first, just because it's on the brain because of that Iowa hunt. And so when I'm looking at hill country, there's a couple things that I look at first. When I'm looking at the map from just an aerial photo standpoint. And, you know, I'll look at various different places and look at the size and proximity to cities and things like that. And in terms of gun hunting, I can very well assume that if I'm closer to a big city, I'm going to get more pressure, which like I mentioned earlier, isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if you have a, something that's close to the a bigger city and it's also smaller, maybe there's not a whole bunch of, uh, you know, thick cover or places where deer can go and hide, then it may just mean that there's, probably also less likelihood for, you know, bigger or older age class of deer to be out there. Whereas if you have a really large area and it has a lot of great cover, a lot of treeless areas, a lot of places where deer can go and hide, then even if it's close to a big city, it may still be, you know, pretty good from both a, a numbers of deer perspective, as well as, you know, opportunities for maybe an older buck. And with hills, some of that has to do with just you know how many layers deep are you in the hills how many ridges do you have to cross to get to a certain area how many trails are cut through the area gun hunters love to stick to uh, you know the well maintained trails is what i've you know seen time and time again also are all of these access points and trails cut down low in the valleys or are more your access trails and locations up high up on top of the hills meaning that more of the harder to get to areas could be down at the bottoms. If you have areas where you have more of your access up high, especially if you got like uh, fields up on the hilltops or things like that, it can be very easy for people to really, you know, crowd up on those high areas, uh, more or less, you know, sometimes afraid to go down into those valleys because they have to climb back up to get out of them and or they have to drag a deer back up to get out of them. So that can help separate you a little bit if you look into the bottoms and look into some of those areas that those deer would get pushed down into. Whereas, uh, conversely, if you had more of the access points and trails coming from the bottoms, then obviously the steeper and the taller the hills are, the more likely you are to keep people from getting up on top of those hills. And oftentimes it seems like in areas where you have hills and you got access trails cut through, eventually if you have low access, it, you know, makes its way up to high access in certain locations or makes its way up higher up in the elevations and gets to the hilltop. But usually it'll do that at a very gradual slope, and it'll find just a path that is capable of doing that. Whereas you might have deer along uh, those access trails that are on steeper portions or whatnot, uh, where you could very well have guys walking uh, past, so to speak, the areas where the deer are at in order to take the longer route and more gradual route to get up to some of those high areas. So those are all things to keep in mind when just looking at that initial aerial and topo uh, map and investigating an area. There's a good mixture of both in Southeast Minnesota, where you have hills that are, you know, in the range of like, you know, two to 300 feet elevation gain, all the way up to like 400 feet on some of the bigger hills. And certain areas are you know, quite steep. You could definitely, you definitely have bluffed out areas on a large number of those hills. You also have areas where the axis is low. You also have areas where the axis is high, and you also have areas that are more open, and you have areas that are much more thick. Uh, you have like invasive buckthorn that takes over certain areas and you can have a bottom that is just choked down and almost impenetrable to walk through. Uh, same thing, you could have that up on top of a hill. Uh, so that all kind of plays into it too, but it, it's a little bit harder to see that level of detail just by looking at a map. That's kind of the, the thing you almost learn after getting boots on the ground and walking through an area but certainly the access and the highs and the lows, you can get a general idea of just by looking at the maps on the e-scouting part of it. But let's, let's pretend, let's look at each scenario. Let's pretend first that you have access up high, uh, regardless of whether or not there's fields up high access is high. And that's where you expect 90% of your hunters to come from. Well, then I'm immediately going to look towards the points that drop off from that high ground into the bottoms, into the drainages. And I'm especially going to look at those drainages and try and see if there's any kind of a a map that can be drawn by connecting all of those points. Right? If you have a bunch of points around a drainage that all kind of dump into a similar area, uh, you might have heard that called like a thermal hub. It uh, goes by uh, you know a few different names, but essentially, what you oftentimes have happen is you have deer bedding either up high or on the points, and then guys will come in from up high and they'll push deer out of their beds and they'll drop right down off those points into the bottoms. So if you can pick an area that has a good collection of points, you're kind of increasing the odds that you might get deer bumped past you. And if you have those bottoms, you know, be more thick, then that even helps you out even more. Cause it makes those bottoms more attractive from a cover standpoint. Once those deer drop down into those bottoms, they feel very secure. Uh, the challenge you get going to have from hunting down there is just number one, uh, wind, with any kind of bottom type area, is it going to be, uh, somewhat of a challenge. And if it is a thick bottom that is you know, very attractive from a, a, cover standpoint, it's also going to be a little bit more challenging to see some of that deer movement. So it's kind of hard to uh, pinpoint exactly where you want to set up in that specific area until you actually get down there and, and check it out on foot. A lot of the people that hunt and a lot of people that I've talked to from that, uh, Southeast portion of Minnesota during the gun season, it's very common for deer drives to occur where basically you'll have standards that set up down in those bottoms. And then you'll have guys uh, come up from tops and basically push deer down into the bottoms. And those types of drives are usually uh, very effective. So if you're essentially planning on other people coming from up top and pushing deer down to you, you're kind of going off of that same exact strategy where you're letting the other hunters drive the deer down to you. So that's how I would attack it. If the axis is mostly up high, how about if the axis is from down low? Well, if it's down low, once again, you could still have a mix of good cover in the bottoms or good cover up top. Sometimes you might have it where you're standing down there and you're looking up the hilltops and you can just see clear wide open to the tops of the hills. And obviously there's not a lot of cover up there. So that can definitely impact the decision on a micro scale. But what I look for, with access down low is how are the deer going to get from basically one low area to another? How are they going to get from one drainage to another if they get pushed out? And so this is where I start to look at more of the ridge tops and kind of those upper hubs and see where the secondary ridges connect with the the main ridges and look for saddles and basically where is one really good area of cover. Where is another very good area of cover down low. And how would the deer have to navigate through those hills and over the tops in order to get to uh, those other areas, Uh, especially if the bottoms have more of the cover and it's easy for people to get into those bottoms, it's very easy for them to basically walk in there and start kicking the deer out. And once they kick the deer out of those bottoms, they basically, uh, you know, could try and go from the shortest, you know, most efficient and most cover filled way they can get from one drainage to another. So that's where. Uh, knowing where the steep cuts are, which are very easy to find on a, a topo map, knowing where the saddles are is very easy to find once again on a map. Um, those types of pinch points can be you know, very key in terms of being able to intercept some of that movement when deer are going from one place to another. Now that said, if you have, let's say you got a, you know, a few different drainages and you got access from a couple of them, but you have maybe a drainage or two that it's kind of hard to get to a hunter would have to climb out of the first drainage over the top and into the second one, especially if that, um, you know, middle drainage has decent cover. That could also be a a good spot to look down those bottoms, essentially for once again, the collection of deer, that get pushed out of those other uh, couple of drainages, but if there's, you know, access from every which way down from those bottoms, then that definitely impacts the decision and says, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to have to try and do the best I can and, and pick out which pinch points are going to be the good ones. And you might find an area where, uh, you, you see a ton of deer throughout the day and you also see a ton of hunters. Uh, but again, depending on what you're after, that might be totally fine. In areas like that, it also, in my opinion, can be a little bit more challenging to, um, to probably get on an older uh, class buck because he might be doing something a little bit different than what you'd expect and something a little bit different than what the rest of the deer might be doing. You might go, you know, that entire day and see a bunch of deer, uh, but maybe not the one you're, you're looking after. They might be doing something just a little bit different, just like how in deer drives, sometimes you get those older deer that will once again, just do something a little bit different than the rest of the group. They're not going to go flying past the standards. They're going to backtrack or sneak out the side or do something that you don't quite expect. So all of these, you know, thoughts and, and, uh, recommendations, they're just kind of based off of experiences that I've had and, um, you know, people that I've talked to, uh, what they've had success doing in these types of habitats, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee you still got to, you know, put the work in and do the e-scouting, get boots on the ground. And it still might take you a couple of years to really figure it out on the topic of pinch points. One thing that I think is, is pretty key is that the pinch point has to lead to something good. Right, it can't just be that you have this great-looking saddle looks fantastic on a a topo map, and it's leading out of this range where you expect deer to get kicked out of. But if on the other side of that saddle there's no real cover, then it might not be really all that great of an option. The deer might be getting pushed to somewhere else. Uh, So things that I would really look for is uh, for the area that you're expecting the deer to come out of when they get through a certain pinch point is the area that they're going to potentially just as good or better looking than uh, where they came from? Does it have a lot of cover? Like the better the destination looks, the more likely I believe the deer are going to be to use those specific pinch points and the more successful you're going to be actually setting up there. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, going to cover the hill country side of things. Now let's talk about Cattail marshes, swamps, uh, all that kind of good stuff. You got plenty of them, definitely in central Minnesota and, and Wisconsin. That I've, you know, spent a, a lot of my um, former years hunting in both archery and uh, gun season. What I always look for uh, during the gun seasons is kind of the second layer of potential bedding. You know, when you look at a map, you can go ahead and you can identify all of the major points. You can identify a lot of those islands pretty easily. Things that you would expect deer to bed in, and then you can also look and see, okay, where's the access, where are the, you know, access trails. And then you're going to have a certain number of those areas that are easily accessible, and then there's going to be usually more of those areas that are much less accessible. So it could be that you have a road with a couple of parking lots on some high ground and that big block of high ground that you're on has some of those points that deer will definitely use. They'll definitely bed in they'll feed on the Oaks. You know, they'll do all that kind of stuff early season. Uh, but very likely during that nine day firearm season, they're kicked out of those spots before first light, cause they got a whole bunch of guys walking in with headlamps in the dark, you know, kicking them out of wherever they're feeding. And by the time you actually get that first, you know, crack of daylight, those deer are long gone and they're out to that second layer. Uh, so that second layer could be a, a couple of different things. It could just be islands that are further out and harder to get to. Um, some of those islands can serve as hubs where they're just kind of like a, the deer won't even stop there. They're just kind of hit, you know, hit it as a travel location before going to a different area. So they can be good uh, to sit in from that aspect. Uh, if you're just trying to see deer, uh, the other things that can be good, I've noticed are treeless areas. One of the biggest deer that I saw last year during Minnesota's firearm season, uh, was. He was probably 200 yards from the closest tree. Uh, I actually just got a brief, you know, glimpse of his antlers uh, with my binos and tried to get my camera on him, but didn't really do a great job. But, you know, to try and set up in a tree and get access to him or to hunt off the ground, uh, in that really tall, you know, cattails and, and brush that he was in either one of those would have been really tough, but it goes to show that certain areas like that can be that, you know, second layer that those deer will feel comfortable in. Also, If you have some type of transition area that's further out, that can also be, especially if that transition area is like, uh, something extreme, like a big area of marsh connected to a big area of like, you know, Tamarack Swamp or Cedar Swamp or something like that. Um, one of the places that I grew up hunting, the, the main high ground was very similar to what I described earlier, where you had deer that would bed right along the edge of that first layer of marsh and early season. And even up through during the rut, you would still have plenty of deer sightings and still be able to get on deer on that first layer. And there was even a certain period of time where I started going deeper than I had to, and I would end up just kicking deer out and never really had much benefit from it in early season, because I was trying to get to that second layer before the deer were really strongly utilizing those, you know, second layer areas, but once you get into firearm season, then that, you know, script kind of flips a little bit. And those deer will very quickly and easily get pushed out to that second layer. And if you're there waiting for them, I mean, it can be, it can be really great. Um, but that area, they had basically a a cedar swamp that was probably a half mile back, uh, from that main high ground. And in between the cedar swamp and the high ground was just marsh, marsh with, you know, sporadic trees and brush, uh, and cattails, uh, an area where there wasn't a whole lot of trees and an area where there wasn't really a whole lot of you know, easy visibility from ground level. So the deer felt comfortable for the most part in that marsh, but it was pretty wet, not a lot of hard ground. Uh, Whereas you get to that cedar swamp, again, very wet, but a little bit more, you know, small spots of high ground with, you know, just kind of the root stumps and things like that from some of those cedars and tamaracks. And if you got in there early enough to where you're just one guy walking into the, walking in the dark, you get back set up in one of those big, uh, tall trees out overlooking that transition, then by the time, you know, daylight finally cracked, you could see, still see, uh, you know, guys funneling into that, those hardwoods. And by that time, a lot of those deer were out of the hardwoods and back into that, you know, buffer layer of marsh. And so you'd have, you know, a lot of time go by where there's no gunshots, no gunshots at first light, um, you know, no gunshots an hour later, but eventually as those deer would kind of mill around in that uh, buffer zone, they'd eventually get their way. Worked their way back toward that transition area. And that's where, you know, we'd have some of those, you know, 10, 15 deer a day sightings, even though you'd have 15 vehicles in the parking lot and not hear another shot fired. So that can <clears throat> definitely be the case uh, if you're looking for an any deer type of spot. But it seems like the biggest deer that I've seen and the biggest deer I've jumped in cattail marsh type habitat, they're always basically in areas where there wasn't a lot of trees around. Um, and there's not really, there's fewer good ways to, to hunt when you're just solo. Um, you can definitely utilize things like a, a ladder or a tripod or just, you know, kind of get creative in, in various ways, but it definitely is still challenging. To try and shoot a big buck on your own. Uh, even if you have the pressure working in your favor. And then that last terrain type that I want to go over is, you know, big woods. And when I say, uh, big woods, I'm talking about, you know, the big woods type of habitat of like Northern Wisconsin, Northern Minnesota, specifically, not necessarily some of the big woods, like, you know, guys might have down south, but areas of big woods where you're not just way out in the middle of nowhere. Areas of big woods where you still have a decent human presence, uh human population, you got uh, specific, you know, wildlife management areas and, and, or, you know, state forests where there's uh, logging roads that are cut through, where there's parking lots. And there's kind of a mixture of habitat where it's mostly flat, but you got some rolling hills and you got some swamps that that's pretty much like what, uh, I'm mostly referring to when I talk about big woods, uh, specifically for this gun hunting, you know, if it was really low pressure, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of, you know, national forest or something like that. Well, I don't really have a whole lot of, um, experience hunting that type of stuff. That's probably almost a, an area where you'd be better off, you know, listening to a guy that Uh, hunts that primarily as their main thing and and either as a a tracker or hunts over pinch points like, uh, like beaver pond, uh, crossings, you know, beaver dams and things like that. Uh, but in the stuff that I'm more familiar with, there's certainly some similarities and crossover between Martian swamp, right? You're looking for that edge that is deeper than most other people would like to get to, you know, that second layer of bedding. Uh, so, you are able to pick out the parking lots and you're able to pick out the logging roads. And it always certainly seems like it's especially true in some of these big woods areas that guys really like to stick to the logging roads. For the most part, those logging roads can be, you know, fairly long. It can be pretty easy to get two, three miles back in and make a guy feel like he's way back away from everybody. But in reality, you know, a lot of these guys are just walking into a certain spot where they, they feel like, you know, Hey, here's a good ridge. Here's a scrape on this main logging road. Here's some tracks and they'll just go off a couple hundred yards and sit there. And so if you're able to look at it, especially from the big picture, this is probably one of those terrain types where looking at the big picture can make, you know, just a huge difference. You're looking for, okay, people are accessing from here, here, and here, they walk on these logging roads and then you just kind of draw a buffer layer around all of those various access points and you kind of see where the dead zones are and then by looking at those dead zones, okay, which are the ones that have a lot of cover, you know, which ones are maybe treeless, which ones have had clear cuts, you know, recently and they're super thick. Those are the types of areas where, you know, it's really easy and, you know, logical for those deer to get pushed to. Uh, I mentioned, you know, water, if you have creeks that are running through an area, a lot of these big woods type areas, you got a lot of lakes. Uh, the ones I'm familiar with, you got a lot, of, a lot of lakes, a lot of ponds, a lot of beaver dams, creeks, not necessarily like big rivers or big lakes, but just kind of small water. And a lot of times around that small water, you got a lot of good, you know, waist to head high cover and maybe fewer trees. And those types of areas also can be really great cover for deer to be able to hang out in. And in some of these areas where I'll scout them, I'll just walk along the edges of some of these creeks. And very often they'll have trails right up and down the, the creek edge. Uh, there'll just be a lot of sign in general in areas where there's, you know, not really that close of a proximity to trees. And obviously, there'll still be. Uh, sign on the hardwoods themselves, but once you get into a scenario where the deer are getting pushed into areas where there's no other hunters, then those types of areas really start to pop and make a lot of sense, especially if it's early enough in the year where those water or that water isn't frozen completely and you can still get in there via a water access and just be able to set up right off the water. Um, I mean, that's in one of the areas that I'll hunt in Wisconsin this year, that's kind of my main uh, plan, main focus would be to hopefully utilize a water access if it's not frozen and be able to get up into one of these areas where I literally only have to walk like 15 feet out of the kayak and be able to to get set up on a tripod. So one thing I didn't touch on too much was, you know, stand height and exact setup. I'd say for hill country, it maybe varies a little bit more. Uh, depends on the wind. You don't really necessarily need to always get super high in a tree, I feel like, uh, because you have that little bit extra reach with your firearm. And there's are certain areas where you can because of the habitat. I mean, you can literally like sit up on a hillside and be able to shoot clear across to the other side of the ravine. So it's not quite as important in my opinion. You you may not even need uh, to be able to pack in a stand if you don't necessarily want to. Whereas for, uh, you know, cattail marsh and swamp type habitat, if you're on like a hardwood island, then yeah, you might not need to be able to get up high, but I still feel like it definitely gives you an advantage because you're able to see out not only horizontally and be able to see deer that are coming in and be able to hear, I feel like a little bit better, but you can also, if you get high enough, be able to start getting shooting opportunities that you would never have on the ground itself. Uh, And like that bigger buck that I mentioned, you know, glassing last year during the gun season, never would have seen that deer if I was on the ground. Uh, I was up 20 feet and probably, you know, could have been even higher, but it was, you know, awfully windy. So I was kind of limiting myself. Uh, Same thing with that big woods, depending on what kind of cover you're in, if you're in one of those areas where you got a lot of willows or you got a lot of, um, you know, dogwood or whatever the case may be, and you want to be able to get up, uh, higher, maybe, maybe you maybe got tag alders. If you have the tree around it, it makes sense. Like maybe you got a big tamarack tree or maybe you got a little, you know, hardwood, um, protrusion up in the ground, or you got a couple of bigger trees Then yeah, it could make total sense to get up as high as you can, you know, 25, 30, maybe even 35 feet, to be able to see down into that stuff and be able to see down into uh, the openings that are in the little pockets that are created in in some of those, when you're just looking at it from the ground, it just seems like an endless sea of, of thicket, but oftentimes if you climb up, you know, 30, 35 feet, you can see little pockets in between those uh, and you can be able to see portions of those deer trails. And then when you hear those deer coming, you can much easier actually pinpoint where they're at and potentially be able to get shots down into some of that stuff. And of course, if there's no good trees around in some of those areas, then, you know, I guess it makes sense to hunt on the ground or hunt in like a, a tripod type thing. If I got like waist high cover tripod makes a lot of sense. Um, sometimes if you're just sitting on the ground, you, you're going to have a lot better cover obviously, but limited shooting. And it feels like for me, I always can hear better if I'm up a little bit off of ground level itself. So anyways, uh, I think I should probably wrap it up there for the most part. If there are guys who have gun hunted the first shotgun season in Iowa before, uh, go ahead and shoot me a message. I'd love to pick your brain, uh, see any kind of, you know, intel, or not necessarily spot specific, but just things that you've learned over the years of hunting there, things that you wish you would have known if you're coming from out of state. Definitely very open to receiving some of that kind of information. I know it seems a little bit out of place to be thinking about gun hunting right now, but like I said, it's fresh in the brain right now and And uh, there's definitely always e-scouting that can happen any time of year. And this is definitely no exception. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.